Okay, this is Sean Hillner reporting from the cupboard under the stairs. It's cozy. Waylon Wong reporting from the cupboard under the stairs with Sean and 20 spiders. Hi, spiders. Welcome to Rework. Um, I think that's good. Okay. Welcome to Rework, a podcast by Basecamp about the better way to work and run your business. I'm Sean Hildner. And I'm Waylon Wong. Earlier this week, we released an episode saying we were putting the show on hiatus for a couple weeks. We were going to take some time off to get organized, take a breather, and set up our home recording studios. But life comes at you fast, as we're all learning over and over again these days. A lot of people very abruptly became remote workers as offices closed and we all started practicing social distancing. Here at Basecamp, we've been promoting remote work for a long time. We even wrote a book about it. This week, our founders Jason Fried and David Heinemeyer Hansen did a two-hour live stream Q&A all about remote work. Obviously, these are terrible conditions for starting work-from-home routines. We're stressed and anxious and things are scary, and a lot of us, including myself, are taking care of kids all day at home, too. We all need to give ourselves and the people around us, especially employees and coworkers, a lot of grace. With that in mind, there are still strategies you can use to ease this transition into working from home. We're bringing you Jason and David's Q&A in two parts. The second part will run on Wednesday of next week, so make sure you're subscribed to Rework so you don't miss it. Now, here's part one of the Q&A. Welcome to uh, to this. We're going to go for like an hour or more, or however long it takes, at least an hour to go through all these questions and, and talk about these things. So, you know, over the past week, um, we've been getting a lot of questions about remote working. People are starting to explore this for the first time. Companies are scrambling to figure out what to do. And and we've been doing this for 20 years, so we thought that it would be good for us to be here to offer up some advice and, and, and help people out with this because people are, are struggling. Um, the thing I wanted to start out with, and we're going to get into questions in a second, but I thought I would start by talking a little bit about the opportunity here, actually. Um, as companies struggle to go remote, you know, what ends up happening is, is companies begin to try to simulate the office remotely, which is not really the right way to do things, although it's the natural way to do things. It's kind of like it reminds me a little bit of back in, in the mid-90s when, when the graphical web browser first hit. Most websites started to look like CD-ROM interfaces and DVD interfaces because, like, it was basically like a direct port. It's like we don't know what this new medium is, so we are just going to port this design over from the way we interact with DVDs or CDs onto this other new medium. And I feel like that's kind of what's happening now or people are struggling with, which is, like, they don't know how to work remotely, so they're trying to simulate what it was like to work in the office, which means people are having the same number of meetings. They're just doing this by video instead. Or... They're even turning on, I was hearing, I was talking to a journalist yesterday who was telling me about, she's hearing a bunch of companies are turning on like these like perpetual video streams in everyone's computer where people are able to look each, at each other all day long while they're working or taking a picture of people every 10 seconds and whatever. This idea that like you want to try to simulate what it's like being in an office where you can see everybody. So why not see everybody at home? But this is the wrong approach. But it's again, I understand why people do it. It's comfort. The real opportunity here with remote work is to embrace the advantages of remote work. There's some disadvantages, certainly. And for people who are unfamiliar with this way of working, a lot of things are going to look like disadvantages at the start. No different than if you threw me a, a trombone and said, go play something. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I would suck at it. And a lot of people are going to suck at uh, remote working for a while. But there are huge advantages to remote working. And one of these is that there's a, there's a mindset shift. It's not just about working remotely and trying to simulate what it's like to work locally. It's about actually giving people more time and attention to themselves. It's about being more asynchronous. So not turning everything into a real time situation. Like it's really easy to pull people into an office or a conference room at the office, which is why people have meetings all day long. So when you're remote, don't just throw people in a video chat all day long either. Like, how about having fewer of these things and writing things up instead and disseminating information so people can absorb this information on their own schedule? These are some of the ways you can begin to shift the way you work. This is actually an opportunity to rethink the way you work. It's actually like being thrown off course a little bit and having to look around and go, where should we go next? Th these are these moments that we don't often have because most companies are they're, they're pushed by momentum. They're going to keep working the way they've always worked, and they never have a chance because everyone's always so super busy to 
reconsider the way they work. And this is one of those unlucky, lucky moments when we get a chance to rethink the way we're working. So a lot of the things we're going to be talking about today are going probably going to seem counterintuitive to many. Some of the answers we're going to give are going to seem strange because people are going to say, like, how do you know what people are doing? And the answer is you don't need to know what people are doing all the time. How do you know if people are working? You don't need to know if people are working. And we'll get into this, I'm sure, as we get into the questions. But this is really, truly an opportunity to rethink the way you work and do some things in a new way that we think actually are going to pan out in a big way for you over the long term. So I want to start with that. I'm sure David has some thoughts additionally, and then we'll jump into some questions. Yeah, I think one of the opportunities here, too, is to realize that when you switch into this new mode where it's not about getting everyone together at the same time, this is also exactly what we need right now. There's going to be all these other demands on people's time. They're going to need to be, if they have a family, help their family during the day. They're going to need to help their friends. They're going to need to do all these other things. We're gathering five people together at like 1030. Do you know what? Don't do that too much. Do less of that and take the opportunity, as Jason says, to to do the, the, the status meeting, not as a meeting, but as a write-up. Do the um, the pitch of something you want to do right now. Not, again, not as a meeting, as a write-up. There's so many things that people call meetings for or they force people to be at the same place at the same time for. just doesn't need to be like that. Now, at the same time, as Jason's saying, like, video chat is, is good. Right. Why are we doing this right now? Why are we not just writing this up as a bunch of answers? Because this creates a connection. There are definitely times where that's exactly what you want. You just don't need to do that all the time. Sort of rationing that out and doing it when it matters is the switch to make. But I think we can jump into the, the questions. Yeah. The other thing I want to add to that is I was talking to, to someone this morning about this. You know, one of the questions that this hasn't been asked yet, but one of the questions that comes up is like, the, the social component is is lost for people who are used to being in an office. And so one of the suggestions I had was, you know, this is, again, to reiterate the fact that this is a time to do things a little bit differently. If you always have, let's say, a Monday morning stand-up, you know, where everyone's around a room, whatever, substitute that for a Monday morning social. So in, cut out that Monday morning stand-up business meeting and instead just allow people to talk about what they did last weekend or what they what they are planning on doing this week. So substitute some of that work for some life. Don't try to go business as usual and then also fit that in. Make some sacrifices on the business side because that meeting that you probably have Monday morning, you probably don't need to actually have that meeting. What's probably more valuable is a social component right now. And then instead of having that meeting, write those things up and disseminate those things so people have the information on their own schedule. So anyway, I'm sure we'll talk about plenty of that. But I think that's another way to think about some of these things is is to swap and to shift. So... Um, by the way, Andy, who you can't see on screen, is sort of managing this live stream. So he'll be popping questions up um, and we'll just go ahead and answer those as they come in. So, Andy, if you want to throw the first question up, we'll uh, we'll take that. All right. Uh, Joe asks, in a workplace with a mix of local and remote workers, what are some good strategies for making remote workers feel more connected and not left out of office events? Well, events, I mean, it depends what, what you'd call an event like lunch can't really do that after work drinks or get together can't do that sort of thing. But, but as far as like, but also pause, you shouldn't be doing any of those things right now. Right. Like even if you have to go to an office, don't go out for drinks. Don't go do any of these things, right? Like the whole reason we're doing this right now is social distancing, right? So, but I think there's more to this than than just that. Certainly like absolutely true right now, but let's say like six months from now, hopefully nine, whatever it is, when we can finally maybe, I think what's going to happen is there's going to be a hybrid shift now where people are going to, some people are going to be working at home even after this because people find out that it works pretty well. So then what do you do? I think the key is, is like, first of all, recognizing that it's not the same everywhere. Like some people who work, uh, work locally are just going to have more physical interactions. They're going to be together more. They're going to do some things that you can't do remotely. That's going to happen. However, there are some techniques that we use at Basecamp to sort of help level that. One of the things we do, so Basecamp has a feature called automatic check-ins. And this is a feature um, that automatically asks people questions on a given schedule automatically. So for example, every Monday morning, Basecamp asks our entire company automatically, like, what'd you do this weekend? Now, this is a totally optional question, okay? Completely optional. You're free to share or, or not. But the point is, is that what it does is it prompts people to share some of what they've been doing outside of work with everybody else 
So we have employees who live all over the world. So it's really cool to see someone in Spain doing something and someone in Brazil doing something and someone in Canada doing something and someone in the U.S. doing something. So we're all not all together physically, but this is a way to share those moments with one another. So we get to see a little bit of each of other's humanity, essentially, and to see what people are doing. And this is a way where these are events are spread out around the world, but they're they're shared in the same manner in Basecamp by writing them down, by sharing pictures. Sometimes people share video. That's a way to encourage people to share physical things that are happening in their lives that are not happening at work and not happening around other people, but that inform other people of what's going on. I'd also bring up when it comes to the actual work part, leveling the playing field is the way to go. Don't have five people sitting around a conference desk and then one person dialing in from the outside. That is such a shitty experience. The lag between who's dialing in from the outside and the people who sit around the desk is just insufferable. And I think actually this is how a lot of people get a bad impression of what it is to work remotely because they get this experience where there's five people around the desk and they're all there in person. There's no lag. And then someone is calling in from the outside and it seems like they're just on another planet. It doesn't work. So even if you have the uh, setup where some people are at the office and some people are remote, level the playing field. When you do a call that requires remote workers, do it all remotely. Get into your own offices, sit at your own desk or whatever, and and use a video chat system instead. The absolute worst way is these uh, conference phones where people dial in. The lag is horrendous. The quality is terrible. And when you mix it with people who are in the office, it just feels really shitty. I'd also say shifting most of this stuff to, to an asynchronous format, it's not just substituting all these meetings, right? Like writing it up instead. When you write it up, everyone is on the same page. Whether people read it in the office or they read it at home, there's no disadvantage. So becoming better writers, becoming more frequent writers and making that the default and then occasionally leveling up to having a call when you actually need to debate something. I think that's the other thing that sometimes people have a hard time figuring out. Like, when should I use a call? Like, what is the format I should use to call? Should I use it for status calls? No. Status calls, they're greatly written up. They're uh, communicating information, facts uh, in that regard. It works great when it's written up. People can read it, whatever. When you need to debate things, when you know there's disagreements about something, that's when we level up. Usually when we jump on a call is we try it writing first. We try just having that debate there. And then when it kind of hits the, the dead end where we go like, you know what? Now we're just arguing back and forth and, and, and writing doesn't feel right for that. Level it up. So leveling the playing field, I think, is a good mantra, even if there's just one person. And that's actually the hard one, right? This is why a lot of companies have a hard time starting with remote. Because if you have like 40 people in the office and you have two remote workers, it feels like such a drag when you're doing a special concession for just one person. But that's the way to do it right. The other thing I would say is just as a practical example, we do have an office in Chicago. No one's there right now. But let's just let's just go back three months. Office in Chicago, a handful of people there. If we ever have to make an announcement company-wide, I don't stand up in the Chicago office and make the announcement to the local people and then write it up for everybody else. I write it up for everybody, and that's all I do. So that's about leveling the playing field as well. There are not different announcements made locally versus remotely. There's one announcement made. It's posted to our base camp, what's called our base camp HQ, which is the project that everybody in the company has access to. But anyway, leveling the playing field is important. That makes everyone feel the same. It also helps reduce complexity because if you give the, if you give one message to one group one way and another message to another group another way, inevitably the messages are going to be slightly different and you might leave out some information to one or add something to the other. And you're going to wonder, why didn't those people know about this? I thought I told everybody. Well, you told two different things. Um, so by writing things up and writing them, posting them in one place, there's a central source of truth. And this is something we're going to probably come back to over and over. You want one central source of truth for everything that you say. You don't want to say things in multiple places in different ways. That's a recipe for complexity. So anyway, let's get to the next question here. Marjan, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong, asks, how do you qualify employees and gain trust if you don't meet in person. That's part of that is the hiring process. And so it starts before you hire someone. You don't hire someone you don't trust and then wonder how to trust them. We're very careful about the hiring process. We spend months and months hiring an individual person. We go through many rounds of interviews, there's many people involved, and we, we, we press people on, uh, in this way. Like, do we feel like we can trust them? Trust is a feeling, by the way. It's not a fact. Trust is something you feel about somebody. 
And you get there by asking different kinds of questions and seeing how responsive they are and seeing how good they are giving feedback and talking to people who they've worked with in the past. Those are the kinds of things that you do. But once you hire someone, you must trust them. Like you can't figure that out later. So I think that it's hard to like give you a step-by-step thing, like how'd you decide to trust someone or not? But my, my bigger point here is that you've got to suss that out during the hiring process. And then once you have someone on board, you must trust them. If you don't trust them, you're, you're already in too deep. You're already in too deep. And that's what happens with a lot of managers where they go like, well, how do I know someone's working if I can't see them? Well, what does seeing somebody have to do with judging the work? Like looking at someone pound away in a keyboard tells you nothing. All it tells you is someone's pounding away in a keyboard. Looking at someone playing with Photoshop or Sketch or whatever they're using doesn't tell you that they're designing anything. It just tells you that they're using a tool. You have to look at the work itself. And the work itself can be looked at from 6,000 miles away. It doesn't really matter where you are. So this idea of trust being a physical quality is also not true. You don't trust someone more because you can see them than someone who you can't see. Um, so I just want to make sure that that's clear as well up front. It's funny because when I read the question, and, and we get this question all the time, there's just so many assumptions built into that question. Like the assumption essentially being that most people are untrustworthy. That trust is, is this sort of rare quality that most employees are not worthy of. And you need to do these special hoops to, to get to that point. I don't believe that. And maybe that's because I've had different life experiences. Maybe we've been lucky at Basecamp. Maybe we've done all these other things. I think most people are trustworthy. When you go through uh, even just a regular hiring process, by the time someone is hired, if you extend trust to them, they'll give trust back to you. But if you start out essentially um, not trusting them, the natural response from them is, is not to return to trust in, in kind, right? So you get what you receive, and what you should be giving is you should be giving that trust. And I think, uh, unfortunately, as, as Jason said, this idea that you can trust someone and you can see how they work because they're pounding at a keyboard is where a lot of it lies. That The lack of trust is a projection of someone's own insecurities as a manager that you're incapable of evaluating the work on the basis of the quality of the work, because maybe you don't know the work. Maybe you just don't have the capacity or the insight to sort of assess whether the work is good or not, or it's done in a reasonable time or not. And you know what? If those things are true, you're unqualified to be a manager. If you cannot assess the quality of the work that's being done on your behalf uh, or in your direction, you're unqualified to be a manager. And I think I mean, the hard truth is there are a lot of unqualified managers and they help breed this idea of trust. And some of that qualification, again, it's not a um, character flaw. It's a skill. You can learn it. Like if you are working in a company where you have people um, reporting to you, where you can't assess the quality of their work, figure it out. Learn it. Right. Like people learn things all the time. You can learn to develop an eye for, for what works or not. I mean, we work in software and there are plenty of very good project managers in software who don't know how to program, who still know how to assess reasonable degrees of quality. And that is simply the, perhaps the key skill you have to learn as a manager. The key qualification is to be able to assess the quality of the work that comes out. All right. David, you want to take this one first? Sure. I think this is a handle here. Near Jax, uh, thank you for hosting this. How do you suggest we handle the situation where we haven't been a very remote firm till now and hence suddenly transitioning to writing more and not going to work immediately? How can we help teams transition through this? What training best practices can we provide? Um, yeah, I think this is, I mean, this is why we're doing this, for example. This is one example of just trying to share our experiences working remotely because you dropped into a bit of a new world and you have to learn some new habits and you have to learn some new skills, but know that it's not that different. People often, I, I hear a lot of people talk about like, well, there's certain people who are like just very good at remote work and you have to find those people if you want to work remotely. Bullshit. Everyone can work remotely. Like it's not rocket science in that sense. There, there is a new set of skills and there are a new set of habits you have to develop, but everyone is totally capable of learning those things. Can't expect that it's all going to happen like now. Um, we wrote a whole book about it called Remote Office Not Required, uh, published seven years ago, where we tried to lay out um, a bunch of things that we've seen doing some of that. Good. Uh, I know Claire from knowyourteam.com has uh, released a, a big guide about uh, managers new to remote work. So I think, I mean, there are a lot of information out there. 
Um, I think for having someone at the company take a little bit of a charge to get a survey of, of all the, the guides and the write-ups and the instructions that are out there and help others send some tips like, hey, we're going to read this. Like, we're going to have a little book club here at the, at the office and we're going to read this guide today. And then we discuss it tomorrow. What fits in with our culture? How do we do it? That's really what it is, right? Like there's a this set of skills here. You just got to try doing it and you got to, you're going to kind of suck, right? The first couple of write-ups, the first pitches you're doing writing when you're used to just doing them in person, maybe they're going to be kind of a little bad, but sort of the good and the bad thing here is that we're going to be here for a while. Like this isn't over next week. It's not over the week after that either. It may very well be months before things return to normal, right? So better start learning now and just get better at it. And at the end of it, you're going to be pretty good. And related to that is is leadership needs to have a certain degree of empathy here and recognize that people are going to suck at this for a while. Yeah, it's not rocket science, but it's new, right? Like I said at the beginning, if you throw a, a new musical instrument in my hands and ask me to play it, like no one would expect me to be able to play anything that makes sense. Luckily, with work, we have a head start here. So it's not about like not understanding the mechanics of a musical instrument. It's like writing instead of talking. You, you can just, first of all, one thing I would encourage you to do is just to simply write like you talk. Sometimes, actually not even sometimes, most of the times, business writing is so banal and terrible because it's stripped of any conversational tone and people try so hard to make their point when they can make their point just fine if they're, if they're speaking but they can't make their point when they're writing because they're trying too hard. I would just relax a little bit here and just write like you speak. And if you're not even good at that, just transcribe yourself speaking and give yourself a 90% head start there. Be easy on yourself. The other thing is, and, and I was hoping to get to this in some other question, but like businesses need to curb their ambition a little bit right now and recognize that time is going to have to be dedicated to adjustment right now. People have to adjust. They have to adjust at home. They have to adjust at work. There's a lot of adjustment that's going to happen. And you can't pile that in and have the same expectations of work getting done as you did three weeks ago. So maybe 20% of the time right now is spent on learning how to work remotely. And like David said, this is going to be going on for a while. And by the way, even when this is over, I think that this is going to be a sea change shift in working from home. A lot of companies are going to allow people to continue to work from home. And so this is a new skill to develop and a new opportunity here. This is not... I mean, it's, it's clearly a scary time, but it's ultimately an opportunity to improve in a lot of different ways and actually make your company far more resilient. Imagine what would happen if everyone became a better writer over the next three months. That would be a good thing. But again, companies need to have to allow time for that to happen. So anyway, that's general. I, I think it's also it's also important to take note here that even when this is over, there's going to be some long and deep seated resistance to working remotely. And some people are going to try to use the fact that this is a scary time where people are not going to be able to work at 100% as sort of a ding against remote work. Oh, look at this. Like we did all this from remote and like productivity dropped. Yet, you know what? If you had crammed everyone into the damn office right now, productivity would have dropped too, right? Like a lot of people are worried about this as they should be. So make a little mental note about that, that if at the end of this, when we're settling the score on whether this remote thing worked for us or not, if you're not calculating in the fact that there's no way we're giving this a full fair shake in the sense of uh, a B comparison between working remotely or working from the office, someone probably has an agenda on, on how to how to tilt the boards there and just get around that. Bridget asks, uh, how to handle video meetings with more than 20 people? What are good rules and how to moderate this? This is this is a good good point here. Um, this gets back to the point about simulation that I, I don't like. Now, I don't know if this is exactly your question. I'll try to answer it my way first, then we'll come around and only you will know if it's the appropriate answer. But um, one of the reasons people have a lot of people involved in meetings at businesses is because they have large conference rooms and large conference tables. And around those large conference tables are a lot of chairs. And empty chairs aren't a good look. So you fill up rooms with more people than need to be there. 12 chairs, 12 butts and seats. That's how meetings often go. This is an opportunity not to have to do that. We don't have to have 12 empty talking head boxes in your video chat thing. If there's only three people or four people that are required to jump in a meeting, then that's all you need. You don't need to fill up boxes on the screen. This is a great opportunity to limit the number of people that need to be involved in meetings and give that time back to those other 15 people. So if you only need four, 
or let's say you only need five and you had 20 before, 15 people just got freed up to do some other things that are really important. And given the fact that right now, everyone's going to be a little bit thin on time and a little bit high in anxiety, it'd be wonderful to be able to give people more time back. The tactical answer is how to handle video meetings with more than 20 people. Like you don't have meetings with more than 20 people. You don't have meetings with more than a few people. But if you have to, you have to find some video software to do that. And people come up with a system where they raise their hand or whatever, put a, a question in the chat. Like, But the point is, is like that is not actually addressing the root problem here, which is that meetings probably don't need as many people. So that's where I would begin to solve for this versus just trying to figure out how to simulate what it was like in person to have a meeting with 20 people. So anyway, that's my take. Yeah, I think that this goes back to what are you calling the meeting for? What is the purpose of this meeting? Is it to disseminate information? Unless that information is of truly high emotional stakes and it must be given sort of face to face, it shouldn't be a meeting. It should be something else. And if you're trying to address more than 20 people, the one thing, again, that these video chats and these meetings work very well for is for debate. Can you have a reasonable debate with 20 people or 20 people going to go back and forth? Like not that commonly, right? Like if you need to have a debate with 20 people, maybe you can have a debate with like five times four people, right? If you have five different groups that have four people talking together. I found at Basecamp, whenever we have more than four or five people on a call, they're not great. The, the video chat formats, the debates that really work well is when you're less than five people on a call, usually even less than four. I love three. So for us, the three is kind of a magic number. I'd also say that this is this is one of those things where this is already happening. Like people already, when they work in an office, they're calling meetings for 20 people where, what, 15 of them do not need to be there. Right? This is why we get all these stories about people like checking their phones at the, the desk and otherwise trying to reclaim some productive time to just so out or not chiming in or doing these other things. This is something to embrace. I saw a write-up from, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, essentially coming with all these mandates about like, oh, well, now we have to work from home. Just when you're being called into a meeting, make sure your, your video chat is on so that I, I can essentially monitor that you're not zoning out. Like if someone is not interested in the content of the meeting, the kindest thing you can do is to release them from that meeting. Why should they be in that meeting if they don't feel like they're getting value out of that, right? Like free them up to use that time for work or for something else and you're much better off. One other thing I want to add is, and look, some organizations are enormous and need to have 20 department heads from 20 departments. Like, I get that that could be a scenario occasionally where that needs to happen. But in most cases, having 20 people and having 20 people's opinions present, it doesn't lead anywhere good, actually. And it actually leads to indecision. In fact, if you want to be even less sure of something, all you need to do is ask one more person what their take is. And that's a great way to be less sure. So, I know the answer that you want, which is like, which system should I use and what technique should I use? But really, our, our answer is too many people. And this, it actually is far worse via video than it would be in person. People speak up over each other. It's like it's impossible. There's lag. You know, you can't see what someone else. Someone coughs and like the picture changes to them. It's like too many people, too many problems. And I would just encourage you to really tone back and dial back and, and see if you can get by. And I bet you you can. And those other people that weren't there. Initially, they might be like, why wasn't I included? But pretty soon they'll be like, thankfully, I wasn't included because now I have other things I need to do that I can get done. I'd say one caveat to this is if you have an emergency where every second counts, this is true at Basecamp. When our servers are down, every second counts. I mean, we're, we're measuring this on a per second basis and, and we roll the whole thing out. We have used video chat systems in the past. And the way we use it is everyone is on, but a very small number of people are actually interacting. And everyone else kind of gets us to see that. It's almost like a, uh, a theater-based operating room, right? Like you have sort of a surgical team of perhaps five, six people doing the bulk of the work. They're talking. And then you have a spectator group of perhaps another 20, or in some of our cases, we've had 40 people who watch that surgical group do the uh, remediation on the problem right now. And then they're taking that information and, and maybe some of them work support. They take the, what they learn live and communicate that to customers or something else like that. That can work. There, the, the mute button is certainly your friend. But I'd say that's the only scenario at Basecamp where, where we have huge video calls like that. And they're not even, they could be something else. They could almost just be streamed. Like there's five people who need to see and talk to each other. And then there's another 40 who just need to spectate. 
And I mean, this is also one of those cases where if you do need something live, there are a bunch of spectators. Like chat is, again, not a bad tool for that. I'm sure we'll get other questions about chat and we have a lot of opinions about when to use chat and most of those opinions about when not to use chat. But in an emergency with a lot of people where you do need to keep everyone informed and every second counts, it, it can work as well. So that could be a substitute too. David, you want to take this one? I'll take the next one. Yes. Jermaine asks, how do you prioritize your tasks that need to be done? Or in general, what is your productivity system or non-system? Um, yeah, great question. How do you figure out what to, to do, right? Uh, this is one of those things where you, you, at the broad level, at the top level, this is what managers should be doing, right? They should be figuring out what should we be working on? When should we be working on it? And what is a reasonable amount of time to to spend to this? Now, a lot of this information, I think, is particular to the industry that you're in. We're in software. We wrote an entire ebook called ShapeUp. It's at Basecamp.com slash ShapeUp that details how we prioritize work at Basecamp as a software company. And I'll just cherry pick out a couple of quick ideas from that that we use in the software world. One of the key ideas from ShapeUp is the idea of not using estimates. A lot of companies think accountability means asking someone to guess about the future. And then if that guess is wrong, then they're bad people. That's that's sort of a, a summary of accountability that a lot of firms seems to run on. It's a really poor version of accountability. Uh, a lot of especially creative endeavors cannot be estimated to any reasonable extent because you don't know really what you're building. You don't know how to build it. So we're just all making guesses and humans are just terrible at that. So inevitably what happens is that the estimate is wrong and then someone gets sucked in to working overtime or doing other things because like now they're accountable to this estimate they gave on something they didn't know how long it's going to be. What we do at Basecamp is we instead do budgets. So we say this general concept, let's say we're working on a new feature, it's worth three weeks. Make the best version of what you can of this general fuzzy concept that's just outlined, sketched in three weeks, and we will trust you to come up with the best version within that time. If it's going to take six weeks, it's not worth it, right? A lot of the contention around estimates comes in when you've blown the estimate, and then now people feel like, she's this is taking six weeks. It was never worth that. Like if I'd known in the beginning that it was going to take six weeks, we would never have started on this project. Bake that in right from the get go. Set up a budget and say, this is worth three weeks. Make the best damn version you can within that. And then that'll ship. So that is basically the idea of keeping the um, scope flexible. You fix the number of people working on something. You fix the amount of time they're going to spend working on it, but you leave the scope of the thing flexible. So, Let's just leave it at that. Yeah, and and real quick, on a a personal level, my general feeling is that if you need to make a long to-do list of things you need to do today, you have too many things to do. You should really be focused on a a couple things, a few things, and you should know what those things are. And if they're broken down at such a level that you have dozens of them, then you're probably getting too granular to begin with. And now you're struggling to come up with a system to manage your own work that probably doesn't need to be managed in the first place that way. So I don't have like, I don't have a personal to-do list like in the morning. I don't make like a list of the things I need to do today. I kind of know what I need to do today because I either didn't get those things. You know, I'm, I'm working on a project that continues today because I was doing, doing it yesterday or something's coming up today that I need, I need to, to deal with. Um, and I'll do that, but I don't like over detail the work I need to do. And I know that's not how everyone's going to be able to work given whatever their work is. Um, but for example, like here at Basecamp, when there's projects going on, like we have shared to-do lists for the work that needs to get done. And some people make individual to-do lists as well, but most of that work is is, is shared in a Basecamp project so everyone can see the work that needs to get done um, versus having separate lists of all the detailed work that needs to get done personally and that sort of thing. So it's a, it's a different way of looking at things, but I, I would not over-organize your time. Let me put it to you that way. I think that that's kind of a – and you end up then – it becomes a chore – you end up being frustrated if you don't get through everything in that day. And you probably end up spending too much time jotting things down that you can just keep in your head. And if you forget them, they probably weren't that important anyway. And I mean, that's sort of the truth as far as I'm, as far as I see it. So anyway, that's my, um, that's my take. And, and then I would also say like it's easy to get lost in these individual to do's and rather than thinking like, what am I trying to get done this week? Right. 
right? Like what sort of like major project do I need to move forward? Because I think a lot of people, they end up perhaps trying to track things into do lists or otherwise. And then at the end of the week, they're like, wait, what did I get done again? Like, what did I actually move forward? So being a little more coarsely grained in how you try to set this up, I think can help you um, moving this forward. Another way to look at that would be like, instead of by the end of the week, instead of feeling like you can look back and you checked off 120 to do's, I'd much rather you have 12, like 12 big picture things that you're trying to move forward. And that, that's enough. That's, I mean, it's more than enough. Jeez. In fact, every Monday morning, we ask everybody at Basecamp, automatic check-ins, the feature in Basecamp asks everybody at Basecamp, what do you plan on working on this week? And people write up what they plan on working on. And usually it's a few bullet points, four or five or six bullet points, some big picture ideas, some big picture things. And some things they, some, some of those things, all of them get done. Other times, a few of them get done. Some other things come up and those don't get done. Like that's enough to kind of, set it up in general. And then when your head's in the work itself, you kind of know what, what you're doing. You know what you need to be working on when your head's in the work. So I wouldn't keep pulling your head up and looking over here and figuring out what the next thing is and looking over here. Like you kind of know what needs to be done. And if you don't, I would say get closer to the work itself and you, you probably will. So anyway, we can go on and on on that. And I know it's a little bit abstract, so it's maybe not that helpful, but that's just how we look at it. And so we're kind of sharing that. Uh, Igor asks, my understanding is that not everyone can do remote, this being not job related, but person related. Am I right? Do you believe any developer, designer, product manager or whatever can? Uh, I, I believe everybody can work remotely, of course. Not if you work in the retail industry and you need to be on the floor or you work in a restaurant or front of the house or of course, like those things are, are not. But if you do information work and the examples here, developer, designer, product manager slash whatever, these are all information work. This is all work done at a computer. If work can be done at a computer, it can be done anywhere where you can put a computer. Everything I do lives on a 13-inch MacBook Pro. I can do that in person sitting next to someone. I can do it 4,000 miles away. The work is happening in the computer. Um, so it doesn't matter where I am or what desk I'm sitting at, what city I'm in right now. Absolutely. Now, you know, there's introverts and extroverts, and there's certain people who feel like they need to thrive around people. And I understand that, especially during this time, it's going to be harder for some of those people to to not have the human connections that they're used to having. So there's some of that going on. But can they abs- do the work? Absolutely, they can do the work. And everyone has to make some sacrifices. You know, there's a lot of people who are introverted who are forced to work at offices every day for years. They don't want to be there, but they have to put up with it and they deal with it. So now it's time for everyone else who feels like they can only work in an office now that they can't, they're going to have to put up and deal with it as well and adjust. And I think that that's, that's the reality on the ground at the moment. Yeah. I mean, what we're at right now is not like, what would you prefer? Like what would be best for you right now? Absolutely. Fucking not get home, get out of the office. Like we're not going to have people sitting next to each other on goddamn computers that they could sit on 4,000 miles apart, as Jason and I right now, 4,000 miles apart. That's the question you ask perhaps like once all this is done, once everyone has had a chance to try remote for a long period of time, then you decide like, what would you prefer? Would you prefer to work in an office? Well, it's fine. Like there's plenty of people who want to work around other people. That's great. Now is not the time to have that debate. Now is the time to get the fuck home. Uh, how would you host a brainstorming meeting? I'm used to in real life service design type. Well, again, just because you're used to it doesn't mean that that's the way it has to be. I think that's the first thing to, to think about here is like, we've done this in person. Therefore, how do we do that same thing remotely? I wouldn't try to simulate that thing. So what you might instead ask people to do is to, you know, I don't know how you do it, but to, to go away and present some idea, like to come with some ideas presented, to come with some ideas pre-thought about, write them up, sketch them out and bring those things to uh, each other. You can either do it via writing in a tool like Basecamp or whatever you might use, or maybe you have a video chat and you share the screen here and there and you go around and talk about the work, whatever. But I, I generally think that brainstorming should actually be done individually. And then you bring those ideas to the group and then you can discuss them versus coming to into a room, blank slate. And, hey, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? I don't think that's actually productive in the first place. And so if, you know, I don't know how you're doing it, but if that's how you're doing it, I would encourage you not to do it that way. I would encourage people to bring ideas to everybody and then discuss them together versus coming up with ideas on the fly from an empty room. That's my take on it. This is one of the things I think we do uh, a lot of at Basecamp. We, do the, we call it the pitch. 
So you have an idea for something or, or you even just decide that like, hey, here's an area we should have ideas on. And someone is designated to come up with the pitch. They'll post it in Basecamp and we let it sit. We let it marinate for a little bit. The thing about brainstorming, too, is you get a bunch of people together in real time and they start shooting from the hip. And sometimes good things come out of that. It's, it's not that it can't ever work. But you know what? I also think even better things can come out once you plant a seed, you post a pitch and you give it a day or two days for people to let it marinate in their brain, maybe even sleep on it. And then they'll either present their own ideas back. And if there's then some sort of debate, like it's not like obvious what to do, call the video chat, right? Like let's talk about the ideas that kind of seem to be in conflict or let's try to see where they gel. A lot of times that's not even necessary. The number of pitches that either me or Jason or someone else at Basecamp will do where the answer is, fuck yeah, this is great. Let's do it. No meeting required. Someone sat down, thought about a thing, presented those thoughts, and the people went, that's great. Let's go. No meeting required. It's a, it's a large share of the number of pitches that we do. Cool. Um, oof. This is a tough one. Uh, not exactly a remote work question, but I think very relevant right now. How do you properly handle large layoffs over 10 people? To be honest, I'm the wrong person to, to ask. We've never had to lay anybody off. Um, so I don't have that personal experience. The only thing I can say is, is God, what, what can I say about that? If, if we had to do something, you know, I would be as, you know, you have to be as empathetic as possible, but you also have to be as clear as possible with people. And what I would be careful about is, is false hope. This is one of those things that's tricky, especially like if you have to lay someone off or if you have to fire somebody or whatever, especially with layoffs, like people don't really know how long this is going to go. So a layoff technically is that hopefully you'll be able to come back to work at some point. And I've seen some companies already saying like, we're going to close the office down for two weeks and we'll be back. We'll be opening, you know, March 30th or something. It's like, probably not. Don't put false hope out there because at some point it makes you look like you don't know what you're doing and you're uninformed. So I'd be very careful about that. So if it's layoffs, I wouldn't say like, we'll, we'll be back in touch in, in April. Like I would say, we don't know how long this is going to last. We're I'm terribly sorry about this. We've, we've tried to do everything we can to prevent this, but this is the reality of the situation right now. And we hope down the road, to lay off that we can bring people back, but we just don't know right now, I think is the most honest way to approach that. But I don't have tactical experience in this. Um, so I don't have much to share. Maybe David has something else to share, but. Well, I've been on the receiving end or I've worked at companies that went through layoffs and yeah, I'm, I'm struggling to find like, what is the good way to do it? Hopefully someone has thought about this because everyone I went through, they were fucking terrible. And it maybe that's just what they are. They are fucking terrible. Um, I've not put enough thought into it to to really think about how to do it better. All the anything related to that we've done at Basecamp is that we've fired people where for whatever reason we thought like it wasn't going to work out anymore. And in those situations, we always try to do it in person. We try to have a document ready that spelled out all the details. When someone is getting this information, it's a huge just mental shock, emotional mental shock. And they're not going to remember the things that were said necessarily when that happens. So they need something to hold on to after the fact. And in those situations, it was also not, um, not a debate. It was a statement of fact. Right. Like we've already by the time you're in that meeting, this has already happened. It's it's not a thing for us to sort of go over how it happens or, or whatever. And I think that's the other part of this. Keep it mercifully short. Like people are going to be extremely distraught after this being stuck in in some conversation with with some person going over this. Not that helpful. Again, writing it down. But I think, as Jason said, we're not the right people to do this. There are specialists, uh, I think, at companies who've gone through this in multiple rounds or whatever, who, who hopefully have uh, better information about it. The one piece I would add, though, is because I've just read read some stories about this, and you never want your employees to find out about this in the news or something like. Like y- you have to tell people directly why you're making this decision, and and you, the leadership or team lead or manager, whoever's responsible for this person, needs to needs to tell them. You don't want to send out some blanket statements. You don't want people to read about it in the news or hear about it in the news. You don't want people to show up. There's a there's a small grocery store um, near us. This was a year or two ago called Stanley's in Chicago. It's like a fruit market. It's a little grocery store, and people have been working there for 10, 15 years. And people came to work one day, and there was just a sign on the door saying, we're closed, or we're done, or it's over. And employees had no clue this was coming. 
They didn't know. They didn't hear from anyone. They just showed up. They took public transportation and showed up that day and saw a note on the door saying, you don't have a job anymore. There's no shittier way to do it than that. And you feel terrible for those people. And the management, you just want to fucking punch them in the face because that is just a heartless way to deal with people, to treat people. And so that kind of thing you want to be very careful about. So anyway, clear communication, honest communication. If there's paperwork required, have it ready for people. Don't say like you're laid off next week. You'll be hearing from legal or like there should be no gap in time here. You got to have everything prepared for people and, and do your do your job as well. So. I'd say other, one other thing, the final thing about layoffs, uh, what I've seen uh, a lot of times is the, this, the sense of like, once the layout is executed, there's like zero trust. Like these are almost like alien intruders and need to be escorted out by security or something like that. If someone is being fired for being, I don't know, abusive or threatening or whatever, totally, that's a rational thing to do. But as a precautionary measure for everyone that like all of a sudden now you're going to treat them as though they were potentially gonna i don't know do something terrible like just no right like there's a lot of this cover your ass well we're just taking like precautions in case well also take some precautions for just the basic humanity of the situation yeah all right next one uh coming in from twitch i believe uh what do you think are the key things i can do as a manager of a small team to make remote working a great experience within my team even if our company culture is still catching up after being forced to go full remote so again, this is a situation where I think empathy is required and also just like pausing expectations. So let's say you're in the middle of a project last week, and then all of a sudden it's remote time. There's an announcement made. Everyone can't work from the office anymore. Starting Monday, we're remote. The announcement's made Friday. You cannot expect as a leader that Monday, everything's going to be normal. It's just going to be remote. Like that's not how it's going to be. You need to cut back your ambitions a little bit. You need to have some time for people to adjust. You need to get, let people get used to things. You need to let people get their home office set up. You need to let people get equipment if they don't have any. You cannot just assume that business is going to continue as usual. Um, you have to dial back ambitions. You have to put things on pause for a little bit. So to me, that is the most important part here. People will figure it out. You will all figure out how to do this one way or the other. But You can't figure it out if you're also being pushed forward to do everything you were doing right before at the same speed in the same way. That's just unfair. It's just flat out unfair and it's unreasonable. So I think it's it's incumbent upon leadership to slow down, to chill out for a little bit, to relax, to give people some space to figure this out amongst themselves, to get the right tools in place, the right protocols in place, to let people screw up a bunch of times here and force it to work. I mean, I always think about the opposite. Like we've been remote for 20 years, right? We use Basecamp every day to do our work. I don't have to see anybody, whatever. If we were forced, if we said you can't use Basecamp, everyone has to come to the office every day, what would we do? We would like be like, oh, I don't fucking know what to do. Yeah, mine, like, <laughs> it, it would take us a while to figure out how to adjust to that. The same thing is true on the other side, of course. And for more, most people, it's true right now, which is companies and leadership and management need to create some space for people to have the time to figure it out. Adults will figure it out. It's not that hard. Like David said, it's not that challenging. It's just different. And anything that's different takes some time to break some habits and get used to some new ones. So that's the, that's the advice I would give people is ask your management if they're not giving you space to give you a little bit of space. If you are a leader, if you are an owner, if you are a manager, if you have power in an organization, create some space for people, let them ease into this and don't just throw them at throw them at it and assume everything's going to be the same. I'd also say, if you're a manager, now's a good time to be a leader. So step forward, make some decisions about how we're going to work together. There are a billion different tools you could pick. Pick some or one, one. and go with that, right? Pick a tool and say, this is what we're going to do. Don't like leave it up to like, oh, I don't. I guess maybe we can use a little bit of this or a little bit of that. Like now is not the time for sort of just the lack of clarity that comes from having everything everywhere. So pick a tool, run with that, and then be the example. Right. Instead of being like the first thing we do Monday morning is like we do a video call that's going to last two hours with 40 people. Like someone was talking about. No, you set the good example by Monday morning. You have a write up ready that's detailed about how we're approaching this. That's empathetic, as Jason is saying uh, in writing, like, hey, we understand that everyone can't work at, uh, at, at full capacity. Jason shared a write up that we had posted for, at Basecamp earlier this morning. You can find it on Twitter. Just do some of that and then 
set out the work, right? Like the, the other thing here is, is when people are under stress and they're fearful, now is the time to give them some, some guidelines, some boundaries like, hey, okay, we can't just like do free form critique. Right now, this week, let's just try to get through these five things. Let's just try to focus on this right now. So that people can kind of almost be a little mechanical in their, in their work as they get going. And then once there's momentum and we're going and we're posting in this way, uh, things are good. But it really is on you as a manager to first find the way and then show the way. The, the thing I want to add here, this is going to sound like a bit of a pitch for Basecamp. And, and essentially it kind of is because I believe Basecamp is probably one of the best things you could be using right now for remote work. But here's why. Um, and, I, and I've heard from a few people about this. They're wondering, like, what do we get? What do we, we haven't worked remotely before, so what tools do we need? And people go off and buy four or five. They buy a chat thing, and they buy a messaging thing, and they buy a file sharing thing, and they buy a scheduling thing. And what ends up happening is, in times of stress right now, you pile, if you pile four or five different tools in front of people and try to onboard them in four or five different tools, and there's no system in place, like, people are going to go, where do I put the information? Do I put it here? Do I put it there? Do I put, it's actually going to be far worse and you're going to be digging yourself a very deep hole right now. What you want to find is, I would encourage you to use Basecamp, but you can use whatever tool you want. But I would find a tool that's more of an all-in-one style tool or one all-in-one style product that has a variety of different tools built into it. So at the very least, if someone puts something in the wrong place, they're still putting it in one product. Um, when you put something in the wrong place in the wrong product, it's a total mess. And people aren't going to know where to find things. And they're not, And they're going to follow the wrong examples. So... What you want is a central single source of truth. And if people put information in the wrong place, at least it's in the right general place. So I think that's something I would encourage you to do. Whatever you want to use, it's fine with us, of course, but find something that handles many things together and not just something that is a small piece of the overall tool set you're going to need because you're going to find yourself in a deeper hole than, than you're going to want to be in, in in a week or so when people are completely confused and stuff's out. And people say, why did, I thought you, why didn't you see that? Well, it was over here. Well, I didn't know to look over there. I thought I was supposed to be looking over here. Like this is what's going to happen when people are scrambling with too many tools at once. So pick something, stick with it and run with that. Rework is produced by Waylon Wong and me, Sean Hildner. Music for the show is by Clipart. Remember, we'll bring you part two of Jason and David's Q&A next week. If you subscribe to Rework, you'll get the episode as soon as it's released. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you have a story about what it's been like working from home for the first time, we'd love to hear from you. You can record a voice memo and email it to hello at rework.fm or leave us a voicemail at 708-628-7850. Again, that's 708-628-7850.